one more prayer. If you would offer this prayer, um, it will be on the screen with me, a prayer of illumination over the scripture before it is read. Um, if you would say that with me. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Our scripture today comes from Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. Um, hear these words from the scripture. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did, not act, they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And allowed the boys to live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then the Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our sermon topic today has to do with fear, um, what, uh, about how fear uh, attacks us. Now, in my house, we deal with fear a lot. I have three daughters, um, a three-year-old, a six-year-old, and a 10-year-old, and my six-year-old daughter is, she has a tender heart. She's a wonderful person, but she is one of those people who struggles with fear. And her, her most basic fear is the fear of being by herself. As the middle daughter, she wants people around her at all times of the day and night. She does not like to be alone. And so, um, this is not like my oldest daughter who had three years by herself and cherishes her alone time. My middle daughter doesn't ever want to be alone. Now, my youngest daughter, she can be alone but the funny thing about fear is that it, you can pass it on to other people. And so my, my middle daughter, when she gets afraid, she will pass it on to my three-year-old. And all of a sudden, she's afraid of something that just days before she wasn't afraid of. Fear has a way of being passed on. I wonder if you ever had an experience where, where somebody was afraid and they tried to pass on their fear to you. Um, like, well, I know for me, when I was a teacher, um, I had principals who, whenever the test, you know, we'd take some middle of the year exam and the scores didn't look right, and then they would go into an office meeting with their boss, and then they would be afraid for their job, and they would bring that fear back to us and try to pass it on to all the teachers through their actions, through their saying. All of a sudden, the building started to feel like an anxious place because they wanted to pass on their fears. Have you ever been in an environment where people wanted to pass on their fears to you? All the teachers I know are like, amen, I know what that looks like. But even in corporate spaces and, and other public service spaces, there are times when people want to pass on fear. 
And even if you don't work um, right now and you're at home, you watch the news, um, there are plenty of, of politicians who want to pass on fear of this thing or that thing happening. Of this, If we take this one step, the next end of the line will be the complete devastation of our society. I don't know how many times I've heard in the last 10 years that the next thing we do, the next election, the next uh, midterms, the next this, the next that, will is, if we don't vote the right way, it'll be the end of democracy as we know it. Fear can be a dangerous thing. Uh, fear can lead to oppression and pain and hatred. Our story today is a story about two groups of people with fear. Uh, there's Pua and Shifra who have the fear of the Lord. And we get introduced to the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. And if you go back to the beginning of chapter 1, if you know the story, you know that um, in Genesis, the book of Genesis just before this, the nation of Israel was formed when Jacob was renamed Israel by God. And his 12 sons began to marry, and they had lots of children, and their children married and had lots of children, and they found themselves in Egypt for 400 years. And we're told as their families grew, there came along a Pharaoh who did not remember that Joseph and the kind of close relationship that the Israelites and the Egyptians had with one another. And we're told that this particular Pharaoh became afraid of the Israelites. He was fearful of what might happen if the um, enemies came and attacked them, if they would side with their enemies. And in his fear, in his fear, he began to enact these laws, these rules to try to intimidate and hurt and oppress the Israelite people. Um, I'm reminded of a quote by Richard Rohr because what we find is that in fear, oftentimes people who look like they're in control or trying to um, exercise extreme control are operating from a place of fear. Richard Rohr is a, a priest and an author and a, a thinker, and he says this, sometimes it looks like it is control that is behind hatred. But even control freaks are usually afraid of losing something. There is both a rebel and a dictator in all of us. Two, uh, two different ends of the same control spectrum. It is almost always fear that justifies our knee-jerk rebellion or our need to dominate. A fear that is hardly ever recognized as such because we are into acting out and trying to control the situation. Fear. What he's getting at is that he says fear is always sort of like the baseline for these, these atrocities that we see. Um, if you go back and you read uh, Nazi Germany, what you will find is that there were a people afraid and, and they had a leader who tapped into the fears of the end of their society that, and, and then to locate a particular subgroup, a minority group in that community and say it's all their fault. That's what it, exactly what is happening in the land of Egypt, that they are worried about what the future may hold. And he says, if we want to protect our future, all we need to do is keep these people down. He's operating in fear. And in the midst of that text, we are told that there are two women, 
two Hebrew midwives who feared the Lord. Now we have to understand uh, the position that they were in because um, they were faced with another fear. They were faced with a king who wanted them to do something that was heinous but would be able to provide for them protection and perhaps even wealth. You have to understand the language that is being used here. If we go back to Genesis, these, this group of people was always referred to as Israelites. That's their, their lineage. They're from Israel. But here they're referred to as Hebrews. And if you study Semitic languages, you'll find that in many of the Semitic countries, there was a common uh, phrase, that we get the word Hebrew from, that meant a foreigner, an outsider. The, the, in, in different sub-societies, the people labeled Hebrew were always the people at the exact bottom of the social order. That there were people that had, they were considered outsiders and dangerous and labeled such so that you could uh, discriminate against them without worrying about um, the rest of society because you would blame everything on them. You can find this in other ancient Semitic cultures, this, this word Hebrew. And so when the women are referred to as the Hebrew midwives, what the authors need you to know is that these are people at the very bottom of the social strata of the Egyptian world. Could you imagine, well, you, you, we can imagine who would be at the very bottom of our social strata, the kind of person that is poor and, and out of luck and has no social collateral at all, and the president of the United States says, I need you to do this thing wrong, and even if it was wrong, the kind of pressure that person would be on, under. That's the Hebrew midwives in this story. But we're told that the linchpin of the story, the, the thing that changes everything is that they feared the Lord. These two women feared God. And so they disobeyed a direct order from the king of Egypt and, and really made a fool of the king of Egypt in their little discussion because they feared God. And so... We're talking about our, our sermon series, Portraits of Faith. We're talking about faith, what it means to be people of faith. And as people of faith, this idea of fearing God is an important concept for us to get a hold of. I want to talk today just a few minutes about what it means to be people who fear God. If we study the particular Hebrew phrase that is used there, fear of Elohim, that's used in this passage, when we study all the places, you start to see some patterns of the way that this phrase is used. The first way this phrase is often used has to do with discernment and choice making. Discernment, uh, the Bible says that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, wisdom is the ability here to understand what is truly at stake and to say yes to God. To understand what is truly at stake and to say yes to God. When you have a choice between right and wrong, but you discern, you understand what is truly at stake and you say yes to God. I want to give you an example. One of my favorite 20th century leaders is a man named Oscar Romero. Oscar Romero was a priest in El Salvador. Um, and Oscar Romero, during his life, uh, there was a, this violent up, uptick in, in violence in El Salvador, a civil war, and Oscar Romero, a priest, saw one of his friends, another priest, gunned down 
because he was standing against the gangs and the violence that was happening in his country. And so he had a discerning moment. In that, in that moment, he had a decision to make. Um, he had a decision to say, who am I to God? Who do I want to be in relationship to God? Who, do, who, who am I? He discerned rightly, I believe, what it meant for him in that moment. He, he has this quote. He says, beautiful is the moment in which we understand that we are no more than an instrument of God. We live only as long as God wants us to live. We can only do as, as much as God makes us able to do. We are only as intelligent as God would have us to be. What he's saying, he's saying, there, what he realized when he saw his friend gunned down, there was an, an opportunity to choose himself, to protect himself, to say for himself, I want to, uh, you know, he could have, uh, phoned up the Vatican, sent a letter, please move me to some other country, move me to some other part of this country, move me out of the way of violence. But instead, Oscar Romero chose to stay precisely where he was. He decided that he was an instrument in the hands of God, that God might be using him for just a moment as this. This is the same heart um, that Malachi, when in, in the book of Esther, when Esther has to go to the king and ask for protection for the Jewish people, and, and, and Malachi says, perhaps, perhaps you were made queen for just a time as this. There is a way in which we, when we have the fear of God in us, we are able to discern rightly what is at stake for us, but also what is at stake for our neighbors. And we say yes to God despite of what is at stake. Um, another, another example I want to give you, um, choosing actions of, choosing the actions of God instead of the actions of evil, being shrewd in choosing love of our neighbors. Um, the Hebrew midwives had this opportunity. They could have chosen to protect themselves, to care for themselves, to make themselves wealthy by saying yes to the Pharaoh, or they could have chosen their neighbors instead. That maybe God had put them there to protect their neighbors. Um, I'm, today I'm mentioning several uh, 20th century leaders um, who are known for their, their stance against oppressors. And what many biblical scholars and others would say is that one of the earliest written examples of, of people who are standing against their oppressors, sort of civil disobedience, is these two Hebrew women in this text. In that long lineage of standing against their oppressors is a story, uh, my, one of my favorite stories about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, in, in a book that he wrote in 1957 called Striding Towards Justice, he tells about an important night in the life of his ministry. During the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955, he, he talks about how they thought that it would only last a week or two, and hopefully the city would sort of cave and they would be able to, to get past it, they would get something, uh, some kind of ordinance passed, something, and it would kind of go quickly. But what ended up happening was that the bus boycott took months. And he began to receive uh, death threats, phone calls at all hours, 40, sometimes 40 phone calls a day. 
also letters in the mail. And he was afraid. He got afraid, and I, I think rightly so, I would be afraid too. And he talks about a Friday evening. He came home from a long day of work, um, writing sermons and doing all the things pastors do, um, and, and extra things he was doing because he was leading his bus boycott. And he got home at night, and he, they went to bed, they ate dinner, they went to bed, and he just could not sleep. He said he got up and he started pacing his, pacing his house, and he got, made a cup of coffee, sat down at the table, and began to pray to God to, to, to figure out what he should do next. He said he got this sort of calm, this, this peace about him. Not that everything was going to be okay. Not that it was all going to work out in the end. Not that, that everything was going to be perfect. But he got this calm because he said, I know that I am called to do this thing. It wasn't that he was assured that, that he would get glory and he would be on stamps, that he would be venerated. It wasn't that. It wasn't that he, he thought that some years from there he'd be preaching on the, the, the memorial and, and people would say that I have a... It wasn't that he got a glimpse of glory. He just got a glimpse of who he was in God and who he was called to care for. He thought, I need to do this for this nation that I love. He said he got this calm that God assured him. And so he went to bed, and a few days later, his high, he was preaching a sermon at church, and they were doing this, this uh, seminars, the breakout groups afterwards, and during this time, his house was bombed. Coretta and her best friend and their kids were all there in the back side of the house, and someone threw a bomb into the front side of the house, and it ended up that everybody survived this particular night. But when people tell, would tell stories about when he was alerted that his house was bombed and how calmly he was, he calmed everybody else down. He said, do we know anything? They said, no, we don't know yet. He said, well, we're going to end the meeting. We'll go over there. And, and everybody said, why was he so calm? And he reflected on it. And he said, it's because of that midnight conversation with God. Because in it, one of the reasons that we fear God, one of the things that the fear of God means for us is that we choose others. We choose who God has set us in front of, who God has put in front of us to protect and care for. We choose them even if at the end of the road is not glory. It's one thing to say, God, I want to follow you. Um, you'll hear pastors get up sometimes, we, we preach, you know, when you follow God, God wants to bless you, and God will do good things in your life, and if you follow God, he will, and all of those things are true, but there are times when we say yes to God, and at the end of it is not glory, it's not more wealth, it's not a better house, it's not a full, full one, okay, it's not any of those things. At the end of it is hard times, and the fear of God helps us to say yes, even when the, in the end is hard times. Dr. King got real right about who he was called to serve. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is another famous um, 20th century theologian. He was working in, in Germany, and in 1933, when Hitler first began to rise in power, he began to speak out every year, every year. And in 1939, when Hitler fully took control and he began to eliminate his enemies, 
Diedrich Bonhoeffer had friends in um, America that sent tickets and said, get out of there. It is not safe for you. And Dr. King, I mean, Dr. King, I'm sorry, and Diedrich Bonhoeffer got on a plane with his wife and his kids and he, they went to England and then um, in England he had this he had this, this come to Jesus moment because he said, I have been preaching about protecting the Jewish people. They're not even my people. I'm German. But I feel called to these people. I know that God has sent me in for such a time as this. I, I, he said the fear of the Lord allowed, drove him back to Germany. He sent his family on and he went back to Germany. Not because there was glory at the end of the. Instead, he died in a concentration camp in 1945, a few years before the end of the, a few months before the end of the war. We know that Dr. King died in Memphis. We know that um, Oscar Romero was gunned down some years later after he took that stance. But the question in our our our, 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 our uh, in the passage, the question for us is this. When do we live with the fear of God as opposed to the fear that Pharaoh lived with? The fear of scarcity, the fear of the other, the fear of what might happen next. Instead, these Hebrew women, not unlike Pharaoh who lived by this fear that caused him to lash out at the people around him, they decided to be in defense of the vulnerable and the weak in their midst. They said yes to God, even when it did not mean their ultimate good for them. In fact, saying no to Pharaoh felt almost like a death sentence. We're told, if you read the text um, and you read the Hebrew version of the text, what you'll find is it says at the end of the passage, it says that the, because they feared God, they had many families, but it's actually a parallel. What it means is that because they feared God, Israel was able to have many families. There's this kind of parallel thing. It's, it's not that the midwives had many families. It's that Israel was blessed because they feared God. Here's, here's the most amazing thing about what happens when we walk in our fear and love of God instead of our instead of fear of our neighbors is that God uses us to bless others in ways that we could not even expect. So these Hebrew midwives, they say no to Pharaoh and what happens in the story right after this, at the end of it, Pharaoh says, everybody in Israel, if you see a Hebrew boy, you, everybody, Egyptian, Hebrew alike, if you see a Hebrew boy, throw him into the Nile. Chapter 2, what happens? There's a little boy named Moses that is born, and Moses' Moses' mother does not want to just throw her newborn son into the, into the Nile. And so she tries to hide him, but when she can hide him no longer, she sets him in a basket of reeds in the Nile. I want you to notice how she technically did what the law required, but went against the law at the same time. Because she set her, new, her, her, her young son in a, a, a thicket basket in the Nile, in a reed basket in the Nile, and floated him down to Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter ends, ends up taking this little Hebrew boy, abandoned in the Nile, into her home. 
And that little Hebrew boy becomes a man one day who goes to the king of Egypt and says, let my people go. Now I need you to know that these midwives, Moses is an old man when he does this. Married kids, he's off in the desert, comes back, right? They don't see what happens. They don't get to experience the glory of going into the wilderness. They don't go into the promised land. That's not what the blessing was. The blessing was that they followed God despite whatever outcome may come their way. Israel was able to go on as a nation because these two women stood up to the most powerful man in the world at the time. Our calling as believers, as people of faith, are, are to be people who discern what's really at stake. They understood what was really at stake. To say yes to God and to choose to love our neighbors, to choose to follow God even when the outcome seems untenable. Even when the, a positive outcome is not assured to us, faith is following God anyway. Here's the last part of what, of what the fear of God is, and, it, and it's what holds it all together, I think. You'll hear, you'll read in the encyclopedias that the fear of God is also this sort of loving reverence for God. A loving reverence for God. It's to hold God um, in, in loving reverence. And I was listening to a pastor, he was talking about the idea of People will say, Abba, Father, and they, we, sometimes we talk about loving God in sort of a casual way, in a relaxed way. Um, when I was a teenager, there was a lot, of, a lot of kids would wear hats and belts that said, Jesus is my homeboy. And the sort of sentiment, it felt like, anybody remember Jesus is my homeboy hats? Am I the only one? The sentiment was that like Jesus is just like your best friend, right? He's just, He's just like a pile around. And what, what, what the pastor was saying is that God does, we're not called to view God in that way. He talked about this little village that he went to one time where, where the, um, a father called his son. And the son rushed in and he sort of, he sort of had this bow to his father and said, what do you need, dad? And, he, and, and then the, the boy looked up and there's all this love in his eyes. And he said, that is what the Bible calls us to have sort of a loving reverence for God because God is almighty. God, El Shaddai, the all-powerful. But at the same time, God is Father. What that means is to have a loving reverence for God. But the beautiful thing about it is that the Bible tells us that God has a similar loving reverence for us. It says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That, that, that God, when God designed us, when God makes us, that God loves us in such a way that God takes his time to make you because God fearfully and lovingly creates you. So in fact, what God asks of us is only to reflect back what God already has done for us. Because the most ultimate example of standing up to darkness, to standing up to the evil powers of this world, our, our Methodist creed says that we will stand up against wickedness and oppression and injustice in whatever forms they may face, that we will stand up against the evil powers of this world. The ultimate example of that was the cross. When Jesus 
knew even though the end was not going to be pretty, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, if this cup could be taken away from me. The end would not be pretty. It was not a glorious end, but he knew its ultimate purpose. Because its ultimate purpose was for the good of all of us. Its ultimate purpose was for the glory of all of us. He would be lifted up so that we could be raised up. So then God calls us as people of faith to imitate his fear and reverence in how we treat him and how we go about our mission in the world around us. We are people of faith, which means that we are a called and sent people. Perhaps God made you, all your quirks, all of the things that make you unique in you, God made you for such a time as this. What is God calling you to do? Who, is, who are your people that God is calling you to work on behalf of? This is the answer to the fear of God. And I pray that we all say yes when God calls us. Amen. Would you bow your hands and pray with me? Merciful and glorious God, we thank you for your love for us, for the power of um, your care for us. And we pray, Lord God, as we, we sing this final song, that we would sing it with all our hearts as a yes to you. In Jesus' name.